You're listening to WILL, AM, FM, and HD, Urbana. Thanks for joining us. Greetings. Welcome to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, coming to you live today, July 29, 2012, here in WILL AM 580, based in beautiful Urbana, Illinois. Today we have as our guest probably the first great journalist who came through to us through the internet, the, the digital journalist, and one of the truly outstanding journalists of our times, a frequent guest and a true pleasure to have on the air, Glenn Greenwald of Salon.com and soon to be The Guardian will be joining us for the full hour on Media Matters. It's going to be a terrific time. I hope you'll join us. But before we go to our guests, let's go to NPR News. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Republican Mitt Romney appears to be pulling back from an aid statement that the presidential hopeful would respect an Israeli decision to use military force to stop Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. NPR's Allison Keyes reports. On a visit to Israel meant to highlight his foreign policy chops, Romney found himself in reverse mode hours after his national security advisor told reporters, quote, if Israel has to take action on its own in order to stop Iran from developing that capability, the governor would respect that decision. That position appeared to be at odds with the Obama administration's efforts to persuade Israel to avoid a preemptive strike before the sanctions against Iran are complete. But Romney told CBS's Face the Nation, if all those options fail, options fail, then we do have other options, and we don't take those other options off the table. Uh, but uh, that's as far as I'm, I'm willing to go in, in terms of uh, discussing this matter while on foreign soil. Romney says while he's in Israel, it's not the right time to highlight his differences with President Obama. Allison Keyes, NPR News. Later, Romney delivered a foreign policy speech in Jerusalem, saying the U.S. has a solemn duty and a moral imperative to block Iran from developing the ability to produce nuclear weapons. The battle for Aleppo continues. Government troops are attempting to drive rebel forces from Syria's largest city. Activists say the heaviest fighting is taking place in the southwestern neighborhoods, which the rebels seized a week ago after being routed from the capital, Damascus. The bloodshed in Syria has prompted an exodus of refugees to neighboring Turkey, Dr. Kala Sawa is with the Syrian Relief Organization treating the injured in Turkey. She says she and other medical workers are often in a race with time to save lives. Every minute passes is critical for the patient's life or, you know, complications even sometimes may, many times may occur because of the extended uh, transportation time. She says she also spends a lot of her time trying to obtain money and supplies to help the wounded and the homeless in Turkey fleeing the violence in Syria. It's the second full day of competition at the Olympics in London. NPR's Howard Burkus reports 14 gold medals are at stake in 23 sports, including swimming. Swimming continues to be one of the most watched events of these Olympics with American superstar Michael Phelps back in the pool. He'll swim one leg of a freestyle relay, still seeking a medal in a quest to become the most decorated Olympian ever. Three medals in London would win him that prize. Phelps had won medals in every Olympic race he competed in since 2004. That streak fell yesterday when he finished fourth in the 400 individual medley. British swimmer Rebecca Adlington hopes today to get the host country its first medal of the Games. She's a gold medal favorite in the 400 freestyle race. Howard Burkus, NPR News, London. This is NPR News from Washington. The head of America's top intelligence analysis group is offering predictions for trends to watch between now and 2030. NPR's Dina Temple-Rastin reports. The National Intelligence Council is the intelligence community's top analysis shop, and Christopher Combe is the council's chairman. Speaking at the Aspen Security Forum, Combe provided an unclassified preview of a megatrends forecast he'll provide to the intelligence community at the end of the year. Among his predictions, by 2030, the majority of the world will no longer live in poverty. The global middle class will double in size from 1 billion people to 2 billion. That will come with some consequences, he said, as rising middle classes will have less tolerance for authoritarian regimes. 
He expects food demand to rise 50 percent by 2030 and half the population to live in water-strapped regions. The good news? New technology could help ease the pain of food and water shortages. Dina Temple-Raston, NPR News, Aspen, Colorado. A Canadian company says it's making excellent progress in cleaning up an oil spill in Wisconsin. A pipeline ruptured Friday in a mostly rural area 80 miles north of Madison. It spilled 1,200 barrels of oil. The same company spilled more than 20,000 barrels of oil in the Kalamazoo River in Michigan two years ago. Federal safety investigators are trying to find out why debris fell from a new jetliner in South Carolina yesterday and started a fire on the ground. A spokesman for Boeing said the plane was undergoing pre-flight testing in North Charleston when debris fell from the engine, which set grass on fire at the Charleston International Airport. No one was injured. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from the Mosaic Foundation of Rita and Peter Hayden, based in Ann Arbor, honoring the passion of NPR journalists all around the world whose stories take us there every day. Okie dokie. Welcome back to Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney, here in WILL AM 580. Uh, coming to you live today, we've got a great show. Our guest is Glenn Greenwald, the columnist for Salon.com, who will soon be joining The Guardian uh, and the author of numerous books that we've talked about on this program, including his most recent book with Liberty and Justice for Some. Uh, Glenn Greenwald joining us. I assume, Glenn, you're in Brazil, but it's a pleasure wherever you are to have you on the air with us. I am in Brazil, and thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you on the air uh, because, you know, as I've made, <laughs> let our listeners know in the past, uh, you've really become, I think, one of the great uh, journalists of our, of our times. And, I, and I'm saying that, uh, I don't say that to many people. I say it primarily for one reason. You, uh, you hold everyone to the same standard. You don't have one set of standards for politicians you like and one set of standards for politicians you don't like. Uh, you basically have the exact same standard, which I think is really sort of a starting point for credible journalism. And uh, there, regrettably, I can't say that that's true uh, as much as it would be desirable in our society uh, for that to be the case. Also, Glenn, uh, you were an Internet journalist. And, you know, you I think you, in many respects your career was due to the Internet. And in, in that capacity, maybe you could talk a little bit about what it's like to do journalism the way you do it, uh, how the, the role the Internet plays, and some sort of the myths or illusions people have about Internet journalism. Sure. I mean, one one aspect of it that I think is probably the most important is that being on the Internet enables one to build a large readership and a large audience and therefore have a substantial influence um, and reach in our political debates without having to go to work for large media corporations. I mean, it used to be the case that, you know, 15 years ago, probably even 10 years ago, if you wanted to be a writer or a commentator, um, pundit, uh, columnist, and you wanted to have a large audience, you would have to go work for the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or, you know, one of the cable outlets and, and basically become an employee of a large corporate conglomerate and accept all of the serious restrictions that imposes on you, um, you know, working within the confines of what they think is legitimate commentary, not alienating um Entities and factions that are important to those corporations, constantly pleasing corporate superiors. Whereas on the Internet, you can essentially be completely independent. And if you're able to um, convince large numbers of people that your writing is credible and that your journalism is responsible, you can build a very large uh, readership um, without having to answer to anybody other than your own readers and operate with no constraints. And I think that's really expanded the range of political opinion in the United States, beyond its extremely narrow confines that, you know, up until, say, 10 years ago, really dominated um, and, and prevented people from hearing lots of opinions. The other aspect of it that I would highlight as, as you know, being extremely important is that, you know, the, the model of traditional journalism was basically a very one-way model. It was a, a model based on a monologue. So people who were you know, reporters or commentators on television spoke to their audience but almost never heard back from them. Um, whereas the Internet is incredibly interactive. So if I write something in the morning, um, by, you know, 20 minutes later, there'll be dozens of, of comments um, 
feedback uh, from my readers, whether it's in the comment section of what I've written or by email or on Twitter or in a variety of other ways, um, that means that mistakes that I make are quickly detected, and it also means that things I've overlooked that are important that I didn't know about are brought to my attention. And so it's a much more vibrant and interactive process, much more self-corrective, um, and, and I think self-strengthening as well uh, because it's a collaborative process with one's readership rather than a sort of speaking from the mouth model. Um, and I think that's, that's a huge advantage as well. It also strikes me, Glenn Greenwald, that you're in Brazil much of the time, and yet you're able to fact-check stories, break stories, critique stories. Uh, down in Brazil, you're able to actually be a journalist in a way that I imagine without the Internet would be impossible. Oh, sure. I mean, it's interesting, you know, for the um, first, uh, you know, year or two when I was writing, I, I did. I was sort of spending my time back and forth between New York and Brazil, but was in Brazil a lot and, and never really talked much about that. And I remember the first time I ever wrote about my being in Brazil and the reasons why most of my readers were shocked that I was actually in Brazil because of my ability to sort of write about news events and follow them and, and, and talk to sources. Um, without any indication that I have this geographical barrier. And that's another thing the Internet uh, has done that I think is incredibly significant is it's internationalized um, political discourse. Um, so that, you know, large amounts of my readers are people who don't live in the United States, um, even though I'm writing a lot about American policy and, and American media issues. Um, but at the same time, I'm able to be anywhere in the world and not really have any real barriers to my ability to report and to sort of stay abreast of what's taking place. The Internet has really eliminated physical constraints, not entirely, but, but mostly, um, in, in a way that certainly didn't exist 10 years ago. Our guest today on Media Matters, Glenn Greenwald, the uh, political reporter, the columnist for Salon.com, who will be joining The Guardian uh, in mid-August and author of numerous books, including With Liberty and Justice for Some. This is a live show. We're taking calls at 217-333-9455, our toll-free line, 1-800-222-9455 here at WILL. Uh, as, as those of you who read Glenn Greenwald know he is uh, equipped to talk intelligently on the state of news media, on foreign policy, on matters of constitutional law, matters of justice, uh, the broad sweeping uh, array of issues we can talk about and we will be talking about in the program. Uh, and before we go to some of those issues, Glenn Greenwald, I do want to follow, continue on this talk about your work as specifically an internet journalist because this morning uh, you posted a piece uh, which defended Internet journalism because I guess there was, and I saw this piece initially when it came out, a hoax piece, and I'll let you explain uh, the context. Yeah, last night um, I actually began seeing uh, some various links and mentions about a new op-ed uh, in the New York Times uh, by Bill Keller, the paper's former executive editor and, and now a columnist, um, regarding WikiLeaks, and I sort of skimmed the column last night when I saw it, made a mental note to kind of come back and read it this morning uh, because it had to do with a lot of the things I write about, transparency and, and the Obama administration's war on whistleblowers, WikiLeaks and the like. And when I read it this morning, um, it struck me as very odd because there were some extraordinary claims in there um, uh, making assertions about things like the Obama administration's efforts to um, force Visa and MasterCard to cut off the New York Times the way they did WikiLeaks in retribution for the publication of, of classified diplomatic cables, the stuff that WikiLeaks published. Um, and I was kind of suspicious of these claims in Bill Keller's column because I had not heard about it before. It was pretty remarkable. I tried researching it online. I couldn't find anything. And so I was able to go on to Twitter um, and ask if anyone had heard about these claims that were in this column. Um, if they knew anything about it. And within about 30 seconds, um, I learned that actually that column was a fake, a hoax, um, that a lot of people had fallen for, including one of the lead technology writers for the New York Times, who earlier that evening had posted, had Twittered uh, to 120,000 of his followers recommending this column by Bill Keller and linking to this fake um, column. The whole thing turned out to be a hoax. It was a, fa it was a complete fake. Um, it was posted to the Internet on a, on, a, on, a, on a website address that looked like a New York Times website um, address, but was just very different, so you, or slightly different, so you wouldn't notice the difference. Um, and I saw people starting to say 
um, that this show, that the Internet was unreliable, that things that get put on the Internet you can't really believe, that this shows why we need traditional media outlets and, and the traditional media model of journalism to verify facts and, and correct errors. And to me, it showed exactly the opposite. I mean, this was an incredibly sophisticated and well-crafted uh, scam, basically, um, that had a life of about eight hours. It got it was first appeared on the internet late last night, and by early this morning, it was definitively revealed to be a hoax. Um, because what the internet enables is so many people to work together collaboratively and to tap into this sort of collective uh, awareness and this collective mass knowledge, um, and to do it in a really transparent and open way, um, and to be able to find out and flush out frauds, whereas you know, traditional journalism has a much worse record of that. They have, you know, very serious frauds that they perpetrated, whether it be, you know, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction or lies about, you know, Jessica Lynch and Pat Tillman. You go down the list, um, and these lies tend to be to have a much longer lifespan because they're not as agile about finding them. They tend to be institutionally protective of the things they do. Um, and so to me, what this one incident demonstrated, and there are lots of other ones like it, um, are the advantages of this new form of inter Internet journalism, primarily that it, it's so collaborative and so interactive um, that frauds get quickly and, and easily exposed in a very definitive and, and documented way. For all the benefits of the Internet for journalism, and you've just documented many of them, Glenn Greenwald, uh, one problem that remains and remains glaring is the difficulty of people to make a living doing the sort of journalism you do. So they don't have to have day jobs or live on trust funds or have some other way to support themselves. And uh, you've been very fortunate, uh, but it's taken you years to build up uh, your, the situation where you are now where you can be employed by The Guardian and be in a position to write books. Uh, do you have any sense of how many other people are able to make a living as independent journalists doing the sort of journalism you're doing? I mean, is is are, is there a legion of thousands of you that you're in touch with, or is it still a, a small number? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, the difficulty of earning a living doing journalism is not at all confined to people who do it primarily online or on the Internet. Um the traditional media outlets are suffering greatly, and the New York Times loses enormous amounts of money. So does the Washington Post. Um, they've laid off, you know, large numbers of people. They've had to remove themselves from lots of foreign locations where they once were were quite uh, where they had where they had a very robust presence. Um, so I think journalism in general is facing great difficulties figuring out how it can become economically sustainable. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think is, is an important part of the future of journalism, and it's certainly you know, a big part of what I've been able to do, um, is that if you are able to have readers who believe that what you're doing is both valuable and unique, then having a reader-funded model of journalism, um, I think, is, is really important. Um, you know, obviously, public radio and, and other forms of Kind of nonprofits have used this model for quite some time, encouraging listeners to donate money every year. Um, but you know, I think one of the things it does is it really holds you accountable to your readers. It makes it so that your readers are are vested in the kinds of journalism that you, you're doing. It, it it gives them an outlet for helping and supporting journalism. They think is important, um, and that's something I've relied on. I've done a fundraiser once a year that has really enabled me and kind of sustained. The work that I do to enable me to have a research assistant, to be able to travel and in connection with stories and the like. Um, and I think you're going to see more and more media outlets turning to this. You even see the New York Times now, for example, um, basically offering a subscription um, for being able to read their articles online, and yet they've made it very easy to circumvent that. So if you don't pay, you can still pretty much read at will. It's really a voluntary system. It's a way of telling the readers if you value the journalism that we do, it's important that you support it by paying for it. Um, and I think this sort of voluntary reader-supported system is, is going to be an important part of how journalism uh, functions in, in, in the coming years. I mean, not to play the devil's advocate, but what if it doesn't work? What do we do then? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I think there's an argument to make that, um, you know, there'll always be a market, a model um, for journalism. I mean, if you can attract enough 
eyes and enough, you know, people paying attention to what you're doing, you'll be able to sell that audience to advertisers using the traditional model and they whittle away, um, you know, the number of media outlets able to sustain itself. Um, and that can be a really bad thing. It can also be bad because sometimes the most well-read uh, media outlets are not necessarily doing the best journalism. Sometimes outlets that produce propaganda or trash end up being the most read, and, and you don't want to rely on a purely market-based approach. Um, there are obviously models that other countries have used where governments subsidize or, or even fund the media outlets and, and try and ensure their editorial independence, the way the BBC exists in, 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 in Great Britain, the way that you know, NPR, PBS have in the United States. That's a potential model as well, though I'm always wary of government involvement in the operation of the media. Um, but I actually am confident that the Internet will continue to find ways to um, produce self-sustained independent journalism, in part because there's such a hunger for it. People really believe that uh, one of the things that's most missing are independent, strong, adversarial journalistic voices. And I really think that if people show that they're independent, show that they're effective, um, and, and aren't afraid of challenging people in power, that there will be lots and lots of people supportive of it in every way that they can, including financially. Our guest today in Media Matters, you've just been listening to Glenn Greenwald, the journalist and writer for Salon.com, soon to be joining The Guardian, author of numerous books, including With Liberty and Justice for Some, uh, which was just came out in 2011. The paper is now out, and uh, I urge you all to read it. If you haven't, Glenn talked about that in a previous show here, which you can look and find in the archives. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, I think that um, you have been probably the most aggressive reporter uh, and writer talking about the record of the Obama administration on human rights, on foreign policy, and frankly, you've applied the same standard to the Obama administration that you applied to the Bush administration, which you were obviously quite critical of. Can you talk a little bit about that record? Because I think it doesn't get a lot of coverage in our news media outside of your column. And then also talk about how people who had been critical, liberals who had been critical of the Bush administration, uh, how they've dealt with the Obama administration, often doing similar uh, steps in terms of national security and, and uh, civil liberties. Uh, is, is the Obama administration's done that, how they've responded to those? Sure. I mean, I think it's interesting in that there is now some more attention being paid just to how little difference there is between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party when it comes to foreign policy and terrorism. Just yesterday there was a featured article on the front page of the New York Times, and for most of the day yesterday it was the number one featured story on its Internet uh, site as well, um, essentially saying that one of the challenges that Mitt Romney and Barack Obama face in this election is trying to find any real differences that they have between them on foreign policy. Um, you know, Mitt Romney wants to sort of run his, to the right of Obama and accuse him of being soft on terrorism and weakening American national security. And yet if you look at what the policy positions are of Mitt Romney, they're virtually indistinguishable from the policies that the Obama administration has embraced and implemented over the past several years. Um, and this article sort of talked about how difficult it is, truly difficult it is for the parties to find differences on foreign policy. The Obama administration wants to run and claim uh, on the claim that Mitt Romney is a foreign policy novice, and yet they have difficulty finding anything in his foreign policy views that they disagree with. Um, and this goes back really to the early part of the Obama administration. If you remember what the sort of core grievance um, of progressives and Democrats were was against the Bush administration. It was the idea that the theory of the Bush administration was that because we are in a war, a worldwide global war against terrorism, where every inch of the earth was basically the battlefield, it meant that the president had unconstrained war powers. He could imprison anybody he wanted without having to answer to anybody like courts, he could eavesdrop on whomever he wanted without having to prove to a court that the eavesdropping was justifiable. He could even kill anybody he wanted um, by simply accusing that person of, of being engaged in terrorism. That was the core radicalism of the Bush-Cheney approach to terrorism and civil liberties that Democrats and progressives were so vehemently opposed to for all those years. It was this theory that we are in a global war, war against terrorism. 
the Obama administration has modulated some of the rhetoric, so they don't necessarily come and say we're in a global war against terrorism or global war on terror, but the theories of power are exactly the same. Um, so the Obama administration continues to imprison people, uh, whoever it wants, without charges of any kind. Um, and although they wanted to move the prison from Guantanamo and Congress didn't let them, the plan was to move it onto American soil in Illinois and continue to imprison people indefinitely. The Obama administration continues to eavesdrop on whomever they want without court approval, warrantless eavesdropping. And most disturbingly of all, the Obama administration has claimed the power to target anybody that it wants, including American citizens, um, for essentially execution, the death penalty for, for murder by the CIA, um, and constantly carries out extrajudicial killings um, without any oversight of any kind, without any transparency of any kind, literally vesting in the power of the president, of the president um, to target anybody that he wants for, for death, um, as radical of a power as it gets. And what's most amazing about that is if you look at the controversy of the Bush administration, progressives were horrified that George Bush would have the power simply to detain people without charges or simply to eavesdrop on people without charges. And yet here you have a Democratic president who ran on a platform of reversing those powers and restoring the rule of law and limits on executive power, not just eavesdropping on people with no due process, not just detaining them with no due process, but ordering them killed with no due process, including American citizens, a much more radical and extremist power than George Bush and Dick Cheney exercise. And because it's a Democratic president doing it rather than a Republican president, the controversy over these policies have, have, has basically disappeared. Um, and you have the Democratic Party, rather than just the Republican Party, now behind these powers as well, which is the effect of converting them from what just until a few years ago they were, which was these, these very contentious uh, policies that were viewed as kind of the province of radical right-wing extremism, into what they now have become under President Obama, which is bipartisan consensus. They've been taken off the table of mainstream debate because both parties are squarely behind them. Two successive presidents, one from each party, has embraced and implemented them. And so what it has had the effect of doing is taking these policies and entrenching them, strengthening them, bolstering them, far more than Dick Cheney and, 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 and George Bush could ever have dreamt of doing on their own, um, and to stand by and watch the very same political faction that spent eight years screaming about an assault on our Constitution and an assault on all of our values remain silent about all of this, or worse, even be supportive of it and find excuses for it, um, has been incredibly disturbing and, and more importantly, incredibly harmful um, to all the values that, that the Democratic Party all those years claimed to believe in. Our guest, Glenn Greenwald, you've just been listening to. I'm Bob McChesney. This is Media Matters and WILL AM 580. We're coming to you live today, this Sunday, July 29th, 2012. Our phone lines are open at 217-333-9455, and our toll-free line is open at 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to the lines now. Line 4, Charleston, Illinois. You're on the air with Glenn Greenwald. Yes, thanks. Um I know the corporate news media is pretty bad now as a whole, but my particular concern is Fox News, which I think goes beyond bias and frequently just lies flat out. For example, the palm trees of Wisconsin, the uh, disgraced GOP politicians who were changed to Democrats in the on-screen chirons on Fox News, and the list goes on and on. I wondered if you could comment on how insidious it is to have a journalistic organization that just puts out falsehoods, propaganda. Thank you very much, caller. Glenn Greenwald? Well, I think it's, you know, beyond debate that Fox News does that. They're a propaganda outlet for the Republican Party and the conservative wing of that party, and they've been that way for a long time. I think that it would be a lot less disturbing if we only had one media outlet to which those practices were confined, namely Fox News. I think the real problem is is that if you look at what you just invited Fox News for, namely putting out you know blatant falsehoods um, and, and lies, um, it's very hard to make the case that it's confined only to Fox News. I mean, if you look at what happened in the run-up to the Iraq War, for example, and the ability of the Bush administration to convince huge numbers of Americans, the vast majority, um, that we needed to go to war to rid Saddam of non-existent weapons of mass destruction 
um, that we needed to remove him from power because he had an alliance with Al-Qaeda, which was non-existent. I think you'll find that Fox News played a very minor role in convincing most Americans that that was the case because most Americans didn't look to Fox News as their authority for exactly the reasons that you just said. They looked to the New York Times or the New Yorker um, or Atlantic Magazine um, or the Washington Post. And it was those media outlets that played the leading role um, in disseminating all of those propaganda and all of that propaganda, all of those falsehoods and all of that deceit. And if you go down the line over the last decade and look at the frauds that the U.S. government has perpetrated on the American people, the sort of fear-mongering, um, the propaganda, the myths about, say, how um, Jessica Lynch fought off um, heroically a whole bunch of uh, menacing Iraqis who were trying to kill her, which turned out to be totally false, or that Iraqi spontaneously erupted with gratitude and celebration when the Americans invaded Baghdad and, and tore down that statue of Saddam Hussein that played a huge role in how Americans perceived of what that war is when the reality was that the U.S. military engineered that entire scene. Um, or even more recently, if you look at what claims are made about the death of Osama bin Laden and how he essentially started a firefight with the American um, uh, SEALs who entered his compound and hid behind his wife, all of which turned out to be totally false, you'll find that the real force um, in convincing Americans to believe these lies is not Fox News, um, but are the most mainstream media outlets, the one that lots of liberals um, even look up to. And, and the other point I would add is uh, Bill Clinton recently gave an interview uh, two months ago or so, and he talked about how he, how he was traveling and he, he turned on MSNBC, which he hadn't done for quite some time, and he saw on there um, for about an hour or two hours um, a bunch of people who used to work in his administration, basically Democratic strategists and the like, coming on and, and doing nothing but talking about all the reasons the Republican Party is so horrible and the Democrats are so great. And he said he was shocked because he thinks that MSNBC, as he put it, has become our version of Fox News. Um, and I think there are some differences that are important between Fox and MSNBC, but I think if you look at MSNBC, you will find um, that it's sort of 24 hours a day harping on the same trivial political stories uh, that Fox News does, but just doing it from the other side, the, the sort of instead of Republicans great, Democrats are awful, Democrats great, Republicans are awful. And, and so I don't think these practices are confined to Fox News really in any way anymore. Our guest, Glenn Greenwald, joining us live today in Media Matters. The phone lines are open. Let's go right back to them now. Line one, Omaha, you're on the air. Hi, Glenn and Bob. Thanks for taking the call. And yep. I had a question about um, the recent news that Skype was working with uh, the government to allow uh, better access uh, to that site uh, for its uh, whatever its intended purposes were. And the, the light touch that it was given by the, the media hardly uh, reckoning back to previous misuse of this uh, by, the, by the government. And I was just wondering how far are our <laughs> rights going to be impinged upon before uh, people stand up and realize that uh, we're being spied upon daily by the government. Well, well, thank you very much, Color. And Glenn, let me add on to that, because that was actually on my list, because uh, it's one of the issues you write about extensively uh, in your column. Uh, you know, you talk about the surveillance state, and I think this is part of that, uh, and the erosion of civil liberties. And maybe just get to the point with Skype and just sort of how the Internet, for all the benefits, also is sort of opening the door to a surveillance that also was previously once unimaginable. Yeah, I mean, it is sort of the other side of the Internet, which is that the more we do on the Internet, the more easily surveilled and traced and monitored our behavior becomes. Um, you know, if you think back to how we did things, you know, 30 years ago, um, we would go to the bank and we would take out cash, um, and uh, we would go and buy things with cash. Um, and now with how prevalent credit cards are and debit cards are and everything has become digitalized, um, almost nothing is offline any longer. Um, and we live in a, a true surveillance culture, and our communications tend to be um, almost exclusively on the Internet. Um, everything that we do or read tends to be stored on the Internet. Um, and it makes it much easier for the surveillance state to sort of monitor who we are. Um, and one of the interesting things is that, you know, there there's this interesting there was an interesting controversy um, last year 
where the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia both announced roughly at the same time that they were going to ban the use of blackberries on their soil. And the reason was that BlackBerry refused to enable those governments and their intelligence agencies to monitor all of the communications that were being conducted over BlackBerry. And the governments of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, being tyrannies, um, believe that it's vital that they be able to monitor all communications, that no communications be off limits to them. And there was a bunch of condemnation in, in Western media outlets over this. The U.S. government, State Department issued a scathing denunciation of, of, of the decision to ban blackberries on the grounds that it threatens the freedom of communications. And yet, a month later, the New York Times reported that the Obama administration was drafting legislation to require that all Internet service providers or even peer-to-peer communications like Skype be constructed with a backdoor to enable U.S. government surveillance um, into these communications um, based on exactly the same theory that there can be no human communications conducted online um, that aren't available and accessible for monitoring um, by the U.S. government. Um, And this kind of pervasive surveillance was never intended to be a function of the U.S. government. Um, And if you go back and and look at sort of the the investigations of surveillance abuses that took place after Watergate in the mid-'70s by the Church Committee, they actually warned, the Church Committee did, um, that one of the greatest dangers to our basic liberty and our identity as a nation um, was if the surveillance apparatus that was at the time directed outward onto foreign countries ever became directed inward at the American people. They warned that there'd be no place to hide, that that would enable total tyranny, well, that's exactly what has happened. We've essentially become a surveillance state where very little human interaction and human activity um, are beyond the reach of, 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 the, of the government surveillance state. Um, and, you know, there are efforts underway to sort of battle that. There are projects out there, groups out there devoted to developing technologies to enable people to participate on the Internet with total anonymity so that, if you go on the Internet, it gets sent around to multiple proxies around the world and nobody can trace where it's coming from or who you are. Um, but there's sort of an arms race taking place where the government's trying to stay a step ahead of that and anonymity activists are trying to develop technology to enable anonymity. Um, but it's really one of the crucial fronts in, in, um, in, in terms of our battle for freedom. I mean, if you look at things like the Arab Spring and the like, the first thing those governments did when there was unrest was try and cut off the ability of citizens to communicate with one another with anonymity and privacy. And and this is really, you know, the key to any form of political dissidence or creativity or challenge to power is to be able to the ability to organize and to communicate with our fellow citizens without being listened in on, on, on the government. And, and it's a real battle that doesn't receive enough attention. Glenn Greenwald, do you think in this battle that there are clearly defined distinctions between, say, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party? I mean, wh- how does the political lay of the land on the matter of surveillance of private citizens uh, online or anywhere, for that matter, break down? No, I, I think you know there are some areas where there are some differences between Republicans and Democrats. Um, things like the surveillance state is they, they, those are or the national security state. Those are you know areas where there are literally no differences, um, and and part of that is because there's no real constituency for um, citizen privacy, um, whereas there's a very powerful faction in Washington, the sort of permanent class of intelligence and national security communities um, that exert great power. And, you know, remember, what's amazing to remember is if if you go back and and look at the extraordinary farewell address given by Dwight Eisenhower in 1961 when he was leaving office after serving his two terms uh, as president, um, you know, he warned 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, um, that there was this sort of what he called the military-industrial complex, this 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 conglomeration of public and private factions um, that were becoming so powerful they were essentially unaccountable entirely from democratic institutions and were becoming more powerful than democratically elected leaders. I mean, it's only gotten so much worse since then um, in terms of the explosion of the size of it and the power of it um, and the secrecy behind which it operates. Um, so that, you know, it's almost impossible to envision um, a president, even if he's completely devoted to, to doing it, coming in and, and really changing or undermining or diluting 
the power and the way in which this power is exercised. It's sort of its own beast. Um, you know, the Washington Post had this amazing series in 2010. Yeah, the Deanna Priest series. series called Top Secret America, and, and that's what it described was how sprawling and secretive this this world was in a way that not even the people just who are ostensibly running it know what it does or or can control it. So I, I've never heard President Obama talk in any way about curbing the surveillance state. Um, all of the surveillance programs that made that were so controversial in the Bush administration have continued under the administration. They had bipartisan support for it every time they come up for renewal. Um, it's just one of those things that does not get debated in our political culture. Our guest, Glenn Greenwald, we're live today in Media Matters and WILL. I have a caller waiting patiently, but before we go back to the phone lines, I want to follow up on this and, and talk to you about something that also doesn't get a great deal of attention, but that you write about as a constitutional lawyer. Uh, the court system, in theory, should be protecting us uh, on this exact issue you've been talking about and a host of others protecting our rights and privileges. Uh, and, uh, you know, the federal courts, you've been quite critical of them, all of them, not just on this issue, not just the Supreme Court, but the district and appellate courts as well. And but you've also been particularly critical of the Supreme Court. Can you just talk a little bit about how, how you see the court system evolving, what it's doing today, what the problem is, and what are some of the issues where they're really dropping the ball? Sure. I mean, one of the, you know, one of the, the, the most interesting aspects of how the founders of the Constitution constructed the federal courts was that federal judges, once they get appointed by the president and then um, confirmed by the Senate, um, have life tenure. Um, they cannot be removed from office no matter what, except, you know, if they commit very serious crimes. Um, and the reason that they were given life tenure, which is sort of an extraordinary thing to do to, to vest somebody with that amount of power, not just with that power, but to say you have this power for life and you can't be fired, you can't be removed, um, is because federal judges were intended to be sort of the last resort for when political sentiments that, say, people in Congress were afraid to stand up to because they would be removed from office, majoritarian sentiments. Um, got out of control and trampled on minority rights. It was the place that you could go and say, even though I'm a minority and 80% of the people are against me and want me to be oppressed and discriminated against this way, our Constitution doesn't allow it. And courts are supposed to be the place that you could go where people, the judges would be brave enough to defend minority rights because they didn't have to fear facing the voters and being removed from office democratically. Um, and if you look at how you know, the federal courts have behaved in the post-9-11 era where huge numbers of people, but especially Muslims, both foreign national Muslims and American Muslims, have had their rights curtailed and oppressed in all kinds of heinous and, 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 and horrendous ways. Um, what you find is that in almost every single case, federal judges have not performed or fulfilled their duty to discharge and, and defend the Constitution as it applies to minorities, but have sided with the federal government in almost every single case, including in ways where they abandon longstanding legal principles and constitutional doctrine. And for me, the most amazing fact of this all is that if you look at the entire universe of victims of the war on terror, of the American war on terror, the torture regime, disappearances, renditions, illegally eavesdropping, um, extrajudicial assassinations, the whole panoply of abuses. There has not been a single victim of America's war on terror, including people whom the United States government itself acknowledges were completely innocent of any wrongdoing, just keeping the mistaken identity or, or other errors made by the government where they horrendously um, violated people's rights or, or severely harmed them in all kinds of ways. Not a single one of those victims of the war on terror have even been allowed by federal courts to be heard, to have their cases heard, let alone have been able to prevail in lawsuits against the government. Um, federal courts have continuously accepted the, the federal government's claim under both the Bush and Obama administrations that what was done to these people is too secretive to allow even courts to adjudicate their legality um, or to argue that people in the federal government who did these things have full-scale immunity, even when what they did was, was so egregiously wrong that nobody in good faith could have possibly have believed that it was legal. And if you look around the world, almost every other government 
that participated even indirectly in these abuses have allowed recourse to these victims and have compensated them and apologized formally to them and, and have given justice to them, it's only in the United States, the country that led the way with these abuses, that has been able to get its court system to completely slam the door shut in the faces of these victims. And, and what this really shows is that the federal judiciary has ceased becoming this independent branch um, that safeguards minority rights or defends constitutional principles in the wake of the onslaught from the federal government. They're really just another arm of the executive branch. They become extremely subservient to the executive branch. And it's one of the prime reasons why these abuses have been able to really run wild and continue to expand over the last decade or, or so and counting. Our guest, Glenn Rewald. This is Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. We do have time for some more calls at 217-333-9455 or toll-free. 1-800-222-9455. Let's go to a caller who's been waiting very patiently. Line 3, Urbana, thank you for your patience. You're on the air with Glenn Greenwald. Yes, uh, regarding gun control, I feel that neither major candidate should be elected because they both sold out to the NRA. They know full well that the Colorado killer used a assault weapon, which should be banned, uh, that he had a 100-round gun clip and a high-capacity gun clip should be banned. And thirdly, he ordered hundreds, possibly thousands of rounds of ammunition with virtually no checks. So a mass murderer could order enough ammunition. He wouldn't need a gun. He could build a bomb. Your, uh, your commentary on that? Well, thank you very much. Glenn Greenwald? Sure. I mean, look, the Republican Party has always been the party that, take, that took the position that gun control was unconstitutional and ill-advised. It's really the Democratic Party that was supposed to be the hope for gun control. And it is kind of amazing to watch President Obama run away as quickly as possible from even commenting on these questions, let alone being an advocate for them. You know, but I think what this reveals is what we were talking about earlier, the, the gun control lobby, um, or the lobby against gun control, the NRA and, and related groups, are incredibly powerful, incredibly well-funded, and very well-organized. Um, and the constituency for gun control um, is the opposite. Um, and so politicians have a very one-sided incentive, which is to um, avoid being advocates for gun control. Um, and this is what you see over and over. It's why they are almost you know, unanimously in favor of anything that Israel wants. Um, it's why they are afraid to challenge the surveillance state of the national security state, the incentives for our political leaders across the board um, are very one-sided on most of the key issues. Um, and so it doesn't matter whether it's Republicans or Democrats. It's certainly true of Wall Street reform and, and standing up to tycoons. Um, the, the same outcomes, the same policy positions end up prevailing um, no matter the outcome of the elections. That's why so many people don't vote and, and are cynical about the political process. Glenn, you just mentioned Wall Street reform. In your book, With Liberty and Justice for Some, you talk at some length about the failure to apply the basic rule of law to billionaires, to the people who benefited from the financial uh, scandals and crises that that part contributed to the current economic uh, deep recession or, or depression, depending, depending on your terminology. And, you know, now we have the Libor scandal coming out of England. Um, you know, what's your update on, you know, the, how the rule of law is applied to the financial sector and what, what it means about the state of American democracy and journalism today? If I had to pick what I think is probably the most revealing and significant single fact of the Obama administration, it would be the fact that the people who were responsible for precipitating this global economic crisis, clearly the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, probably um, as enduring in, in lots of ways, things that imposed huge amounts of suffering on tens of millions of people around the globe, who did it with massive, pervasive criminal fraud. Um, you can debate the extent of it, how easily it would be proven in court, but the fact that it was done through fraud, meaning a knowledge of the worthlessness of the very instruments they were representing to the public as being valuable and safe, um, I think is beyond dispute. And yet not a single one of those individuals has been criminally um, held accountable or even civilly held accountable um, by the Justice Department. It's been an absolute shield of immunity um, placed around 
um, the, the people on Wall Street who, who are responsible. There's a book out, a new book out, um, by Neil Borofsky, who was the inspector general overseeing the TARP program, um, the bailout program, as part of the Treasury Department, and he was one of those rare people in Washington who was very independent and took his job seriously. And in his book, he argues that from the start, the uh, only priority of the Obama administration generally, the Treasury Department, and Tim Wagner specifically, was to protect the oligarchs, the people on Wall Street, and ensure that they prospered, and they completely neglected um, ordinary Americans, um, in part because that was who their allegiance was to, in part because that's who funded the Obama campaign, um, and in part because um, that's who, who they fear. Um, and so the idea that our government is going to hold Wall Street uh, tycoons accountable, even for the most egregious wrongdoing, like what precipitated the crisis, um, has been clearly disproven by the fact that there's been zero accountability, um, even though we're almost now four years away from those acts. Our guest, Glenn Greenwald. We've got a few minutes left here at Media Matters. I'm your host, Bob McChesney. Glenn, one of the issues you write about a lot on Salon.com, and I suspect you'll be writing about a lot when you move to The Guardian next month, is um, Iran and the saber-rattling with R- Iran. Uh, what's your take on, you know, what drives this uh, obsession with Iran? And, um, you know, what? how would you characterize the news media coverage of the uh, Iran situation? I think what, what drives it is, in part, the fact that the United States always needs to have an enemy. It's what keeps fear levels high among the population. It's what ensure support for an always expanding military budget and a surveillance state. Um, It's very beneficial to the people in power economically and politically to have uh, an enemy. I mean, this has been true for decades in the United States, an external enemy. And so Iran serves that role. Um, A big part of it is the centrality of Israel in American political life, um, in part because there are so many American Jews who, who consider Israel and Israeli interests to be of great importance. Um, and you have a huge faction of evangelical Christians who, for completely different reasons, um, view the welfare of Israel as, as being of prime importance as well. And Iran is a serious enemy of Israel and therefore becomes a serious enemy of the United States. So I think when you combine all those factors... Um, you sort of have this confluence of events that has led to this militarism and belligerence and aggression towards Iran. Um, I think the media coverage has been just as horrendous when it comes to Iran as it was when it, when, when it came to the lead-up uh, to the war in Iraq. I mean, if you look at what Iran has actually done in the Middle East, um, it has been centuries, centuries, since Iran has invaded another country or started any war. Um, the size of the Iranian military is, is relatively tiny. Um, by contrast, Israel um, has started many wars over the past several decades, um, and the United States is, is basically has Iran encircled militarily. I mean, if you look at who the real aggressor is in the Middle East, it's certainly not Iran. It, you can make a much stronger case that it's the United States and Israel, and on top of that, even Israeli and American government agencies acknowledge that there's no evidence that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapon, and yet the idea that Iran is pursuing a nuclear weapon is basically an unexamined assumption in most media discussions. And so what you have is that same kind of uncritical uh, acceptance on the part of America's leading military outlets uh, when it comes to talking about Iran and, and sort of disseminating the message um, from official sources, no matter how baseless and, and unpersuasive it is. And I think what you know, we're in the situation where I think the U.S. government and Barack Obama don't want a war with Iran, certainly not before the election. They may not have a choice if Israel starts it, but I think what, what is clear is that if the U.S. is involved either directly or indirectly in a war with Iran, the American people, despite saying that the war in Iraq was a mistake, that the war in Vietnam was a mistake, that the war in Afghanistan was a mistake, will line up in large numbers in support, both Republicans and Democrats, in large part because the American media has done, yet again, such a horrendous job of informing them of the realities. You know, Glenn, there seems to be another genus of uh, military uh, encounters when countries aren't necessarily 
presented as direct threats to the United States, uh, but are rather they're seen as countries that are failed states, that are tyrannical states internally. And the United States has to participate in an invasion as a humanitarian gesture, uh, humanitarian intervention of sorts. And I guess Libya uh, was the most recent example of that. It goes back to the 90s. And what's your sense? Is there a role for the United States to go into tyrannies like Syria and, and Libya and, and militarily free those nations and establish credible democracies? Well, I think, you know, the problem with that desire is that it assumes that the United States is actually interested in establishing democracies and delivering freedom to people around the world. And I, I really find it extraordinary that anybody could believe this. I mean, you know, if you look at what happened in Libya, of course, you know, any decent person would want to see people in Libya live uh, without the oppression of, of Gaddafi. Um, but it was also true that Saddam was at least as horrendous of a dictator as as Gaddafi ever was, and, and, and then that Assad in Syria is, he was probably a worse monster than either of them. Um, and yet the lesson was that just because there's a horrendous dictator oppressing people of a certain country, having the U.S. militarily intervene doesn't make it any better and can make it much worse. And the reason is, is that the United States has no interest in bringing democracy and freedom um, to the world, and, and certainly to that part of the world. And the evidence is, is that for decades, the United States has propped up and supported and enabled the worst dictators in that regime. Um, and the closest American ally in that region after Israel is also the most tyrannical, which is Saudi Arabia. Um, the U.S., of course, supports Bahrain, um, a, a, an incredibly oppressive regime. It, it supported Mubarak up until the last minute, when it, until his downfall became inevitable. And so this romantic idea that the United States military is going to march into a strategically important oil-rich country with the goal of bringing democracy and freedom to it is incredibly naive at best. Um, and what ends up happening is the United States intervenes in these countries and does only one thing, and that is intervenes in a way that promotes American interests in the region. Um, and so if you, if you want to delude yourself into believing that the United States is going to go in and bring freedom and democracy to that part of the world, then it's easy to get yourself to cheer for intervention. Um, but if you look at what the United States actually does in the world, um, I think that, except in the most extreme circumstances, um, you know, it's the duty of every person who cares about the sovereignty of other people and, and the freedom and human rights of other people to oppose uh, having the United States go and drop bombs and, and send their military, which is designed to destroy... Um, into countries where we don't belong. And that, that means Libya, that means Syria, obviously, and that Iraq as well. We have time for one more caller. We've got a caller who's been waiting patiently. Uh, line four, New York, New York, here on the air with Glenn Greenwald. Hi, Glenn. How's it going? Good, thanks. Um, so I read your article today about the New York Times getting hacked. Is that correct? Or... Yeah, I mean, it, it, would, well, be, there were, it wasn't quite hacked, but there was a, an article, there was a column that was made to look like it was a column from Bill Keller that was actually a fake. Okay. Um, and uh, do we know who was behind it? No, nobody has any idea. It's one of those things that was done on the Internet in a way that was probably very difficult to trace. You know, Carla, I must tell you, we talked about that for the first five or ten minutes of the show today. Uh, that issue. So you might want to just go back and listen to the archive of the show to get that because we're running out of time here, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, um, well, I actually know uh, who did it. I was wondering if you had any questions. Oh, <laughs> Glenn? I don't know who did it. No, Glenn, he said the caller says he knows who did it. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, um. Why don't you t email Glenn yeah, with the information, if you wish? Um, so if the caller wants to share his view of who did it. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to uh, discuss off the air. Okay, well, Glenn's got his email address at the website. Why don't you do that? Thank you very much, caller. Glenn, I hear the band tuning up in the background. That means they want to clear me out of the studio. Thank you for taking an hour out of your Sunday to join us today here at WIL. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Bobby. Appreciate it. Sure thing. Take care. I want to thank Kyle Croha, my engineer, Christina Williams, my producer, for their great work, as always. We'll be back in 167 hours with Dave Zirin talking about the Olympics and the politics of sports. Should be a great show. Everyone have a great week. Bye-bye.
Today's broadcast is made possible with support from Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance, private instruction for social or competitive dancing, weddings, or other special events, lessons for singles or couples, beginners, or advanced of all ages. Information at 378-4601 or on your web, search at Mike Weaver Ballroom Dance. Partly sunny skies in Champaign-Urbana today with a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms, the high around 90 degrees. Tonight, mostly cloudy, slight chance again of showers and thunderstorms after midnight with the low 68. Tomorrow, partly sunny, once again a chance for rain with the high about 92. And Monday night, partly cloudy, once again a slight chance for rain with the low around 70 degrees. You're listening to WIL.